Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Block. This week on The West Block, Ukraine on the brink of war. With momentum building and 100,000 Russian troops on Ukraine's border, can diplomacy stop another invasion? We're calling on Russia to de-escalate, calling uh, on diplomatic conversations. And what's the red line? Will Canada put more boots on the ground or arm the Ukrainian military? We'll speak to the Minister of National Defence, Anita Anand. There are some early indications that Alberta has reached and surpassed the peak of infections. After back-to-back crises and controversies, Alberta's Premier looks for a reset. Can he silence his critics ahead of a critical leadership review this spring? We'll talk to Jason Kenney about COVID, leadership, and why he sidelined his justice minister. It's Sunday, January 23rd, and this is the West Block. Hello, thanks for joining us. I'm Mercedes Stevenson. Canada continues to push for a diplomatic solution to the crisis in Ukraine. Last week, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie met with Ukrainian officials in Kyiv and reaffirmed Canada's support. About 200 Canadian troops are on the ground in Ukraine as part of a training mission under what's called Operation Unifier. Ukraine is looking for even more from Canada, though, including military help as the threat of the Russian invasion increases. The Liberal government has taken a tough tone on Russia, but what will that translate to in terms of action? Joining me now is Defence Minister Anita Anand. Thank you so much for joining us today, Minister. Obviously, a a very serious and concerning situation in Ukraine. What is the red line for Canada to consider this to be a war? Is it any uh, incursion by the Russian troops into Ukraine? Or is there a particular line that, that you've talked about in terms of what will constitute an act of war? Thanks, Mercedes. Yes, it is a very concerning situation. I am working on this issue every single day. And together with my colleagues, we are looking at options regarding the situation and the potential for a further Russian invasion into this country. I will say that at top of mind for us is a diplomatic solution. And we are very much hopeful as are our allies, that there will be meaningful dialogue that will lead to de-escalation. In the absence of that, uh, there will be severe consequences, including of uh, financial nature uh, in terms of sanctions, as Minister Jolie outlined this week. Uh, So the situation is evolving. It is concerning, and it has uh, my attention for sure uh, over the past number of weeks and will going forward. I will say that I have spoken with Minister uh, Reznikov from Ukraine a number of times already. I'll be speaking with him again in the next few days, and he has invited me to go to Ukraine, and that is something that I do look forward to uh, and ensuring that that can happen. The Russians have made some pretty hefty demands, especially when it comes to things like disclosing where troops are, where missiles are positioned. Do you think those demands are reasonable? I will say that since 2015, under Operation Unifier, we as a country have been doing what we can to ensure that Ukraine is secure and stable. Uh, 
And we will continue to do that. One example of our efforts in this area is the $120 million loan that was announced today by the Government of Canada to support economic resiliency and economic development in Ukraine. Uh, so the work that we are doing really right now, Mercedes, is across government in defense, in international development, in finance, in foreign affairs. We are working as a team to ensure that we have a comprehensive strategy to deal with uh, Russian aggression at the border and a potential for a further Russian invasion. Canada has deployed special operations forces into Ukraine to look at options for supporting the Ukrainian government as well as evacuating the embassy. What is the decision point for removing Canadian personnel, especially Canadian military personnel from Ukraine, who could potentially become casualties if this becomes a theater of war? Well, let me just say at the outset that special forces have supported Operation Unifier since fall 2020. So it is not out of the ordinary for them to be there. And in, indeed, we have been looking, of course, at embassies across uh, the international spectrum to ensure that we are able to effectively assist wherever possible. Uh, so those are ongoing analyses and uh, are no different in the context of this situation. But what would be the decision point to either add troops into Ukraine or take them out? Of course, the situation is evolving and we are definitely going to be acting with our allies alongside of uh, NATO and our allies. And I will say that in that regard, I have been consistently engaged with uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, as well as Minister Ben Wallace, to ensure that we are acting in coordination. Uh, as I said, I have been invited to go to Ukraine, which I'm looking forward to do. And in that trip, I would also uh, like to meet with my counterparts in Europe to ensure that we are acting comprehensively as this situation evolves. So when you say acting comprehensively, I think I go back to that first question we talked about, about how you determine a response. Is it going to be based on Russia's actions or will it be based on the response of our allies and will we act in a coordinated way? Because there's been a lot of discussion about there being different opinions inside NATO about what should be mm -hmm. done here mm -hmm. and that that creates an issue with moving forward in a unified front. Well, that's a, a good question, but I don't think those two options that you put on the table are mutually exclusive. What I mean by that is that we, of course, are watching very closely uh, the moves that Russia is making at the border. And at the same time, we are coordinating with our allies across the board. I have spoken with uh, colleagues uh, across Europe and, of course, the United States and the UK, my counterparts, in fact, uh, to ensure that regardless of the situation, we are acting in tandem. I will continue to do that because uh, we do have a deep respect for the international rules-based order and the uh, the coordination of our efforts is front and center in that regard. What is Canada prepared to do if Russia does have a further invasion into Ukraine? Um, we certainly have strategic weapon stocks. They're in Montreal. Their whole purpose is to be able to be sent to allies if they need that. Is that on the table in terms of the show of force we're hearing about Canada potentially undertaking? 
So let me uh, respond by firstly saying that Operation Unifier is uh, the heart and soul of, uh, uh, from a defense perspective, our support for Ukraine. And extending Operation Unifier is in my mandate letter. And I will say that I will be delivering on that commitment. In addition to that, in re direct response to your question about weapons, Canada is supporting Ukrainian security through a variety of ways, not only through Operation Unifier, but we are also present with several hundred troops in the region to deter against aggressive activity under Operation Reassurance, for example. So I can say that I'm working with my cabinet colleagues on ways to further support Ukraine, and I will have more to say on those options very shortly. Has Canada begun to move troops or weapons into the theater in case they are needed or as part of the intention for deterrence? I'm hearing from multiple sources that, that Canada is starting to take a more aggressive position. Our public rhetoric has, has been more escalated even than the United States. Your government's been very clear that you side with Ukraine in this. Are you actually starting to act on this now in case you do have to put a plan into motion? At the current time, our troops remain engaged in Operation Unifier as they have been since 2015. Uh, that is what we are continuing to deliver on, and we will continue to do that. As I said, um, the commitment in my mandate letter is something that I will be acting upon. So at the current time, we are looking for a diplomatic solution. Uh, Russia has two options here, meaningful dialogue and de-escalation, or facing severe consequences, for example, including financial measures. Uh, that is the current state of play, and I will be back to update you, Mercedes, as things evolve. Uh, the Russians have basically said they don't care about uh, sanctions. They're not too worried. There's an effect on the Russian people. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of effect on the Russian regime. What do you think a meaningful response would be? Is, is militarily really the only option here? Uh, and if that's the case, would you also look at putting more troops into Eastern Europe outside of Ukraine? Well, first of all, I believe that diplomacy can be effective, and I sincerely hope uh, that the diplomacy that is occurring at the current time will lead to de-escalation. Indeed, in terms of our presence in that region, it is by way of Operation Unifier as well as Operation Reassurance, which is our presence in Central and Eastern Europe. And at any time under that particular operation, there can be up to 915 Canadian Armed Forces members uh, deployed in this operation. This is Canada's largest current military operation. And also we have five CF-188 Hornet aircraft participating in NATO's enhanced air policing there. Uh, so in other words, the bottom line is we do have a presence in Ukraine, around Ukraine, and we will continue to ensure our presence there. It's in my mandate letter. I will be delivering on it. Minister, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure we'll be back in touch soon as the situation continues to evolve. You bet, Mercedes. Look forward to talking to you again. Thanks so much. 
Alberta Premier Jason Kenney is under scrutiny for his handling of a controversy involving another member of his cabinet. Justice Minister Casey Maddu is under pressure to resign after he admitted to calling the Edmonton police chief last year over a distracted driving ticket. It's one more challenge facing Kenney, who's been criticized for his handling of the pandemic and faces a party leadership review in just a few months. Joining me now is Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. Thank you so much for joining us today, Premier Kenney. Great to be here, Mercedes. Uh, sir, you find yourself struggling with another controversy in front of your government, this one relating to the Justice Minister, who you've asked to step aside, Casey Maddu. Uh, you revealed late last week that you actually knew about this ticket. Can you walk us through what you knew about the ticket the Justice Minister received and his phone call to the Edmonton Chief of Police? Well, I had heard at some point last year that he'd received a ticket and paid it. I was briefed on the uh, entire uh, set of facts this past Monday when it became a media story and uh, learned that uh, he had made this call uh, following the ticket. Um, at the Edmonton Police Chief has said publicly that it, there was no interference with the ticket raised by the minister, no ask for that, that it be rescinded, but rather he raised other issues, uh, particularly around uh, racial profiling. That's something that uh, Minister Madhu has been particularly passionate about uh, as a black Canadian. And so I thought, you know, given the context, I consulted with some, uh, se some senior former members of the judiciary and of government, both federally and provincially, to get their advice. And the advice I got was to have an independent investigation. We have a former judge uh, working on that. It should be a very a quick investigation to determine whether or not there was um, actual or perceived interference in the independent administration of justice, which is obviously a core principle. Obviously, there's a lot of concern around racial profiling and policing, not only in Canada, but around the globe, but especially here in, in North America. Do you believe that this was a case of the justice minister being racially profiled and that's why he was pulled off? I simply can't uh, comment on that. I wasn't privy to this and I, I, I wasn't, obviously wasn't part of the phone call that followed it. That's why we have an independent investigator. Um, I, I can tell you that uh, we do know that there have been issues uh, about profiling. In fact, uh, Minister Madhu himself brought forward very important reforms uh, to end and, and limit the practices of carding and street checks. Uh, this is a very much top of mind issue for him. Um, and um, so that's why we think, given the context, it's appropriate to have an impartial, independent look into what exactly happened. You've been criticized for not removing him from Cabinet completely, for not outright firing him, for just asking him to step aside. Do you believe that there's any scenario in which it's acceptable for a justice minister to call the chief of police about a personal matter? Well, I, I expressed to, the, to Mr. Madhu earlier this week when I learned about all of this uh, my serious disappointment because I think doing so uh, is uh, an error in judgment. Um, given the broader context, I think that it's best to have an independent authority, in this case a former judge, look at all of the facts uh, and report back. That's exactly what we're doing. Uh, Premier, I'd like to talk a little bit about COVID with you. Obviously, your COVID response has been under the microscope in Alberta and nationally. It's been different than many other provinces. Um, and you've spoken out against Quebec's uh, trial balloon idea they're floating of having a financial penalty for people who are not vaccinated. You've said that that's something you will not consider in Alberta. Some folks look at this and say, look, it's the unvaccinated folks who are mostly ending up in ICUs and in very serious condition. Why shouldn't they have to pay if the rest of us have to live under restrictions? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I certainly understand the concern because here in Alberta, 
uh, about 70% of our ICU COVID patients who are there primarily for COVID are unvaccinated. And that's out of 10% of our adult population that's unvaccinated. So it's very unfortunate and very frustrating that that small portion of the population has not done the responsible thing to help us uh, with the huge health pressure on our healthcare system that is causing widespread cancellations and postponements of surgeries and other medical procedures, not to mention huge stress on our frontline healthcare workers. I, I share that frustration, but at the end of the day, um, we have a universal, publicly uh, funded and accessible healthcare system, which doesn't make moral judgments on people's choices. We, when a drunk driver uh, gets brought into emergency, we don't send them a bill. When a drug addict overdoses and needs emergency care, we don't send them an invoice or ask for their credit card. Um, so this is the principle of universality. What, 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 we, what we do is we offer care, not judgments, when people come to the hospital. Do you think there should be some sort of a penalty otherwise, though, outside of not asking people for money at the door, for example, but if you drive drunk, you will face a criminal consequence for that decision? Well, exactly. And, and But this is not the decision not to get vaccinated is not a criminal decision. And in fact, here in Alberta, uh, we, I mean, I think it may not be a responsible decision from a personal and public health point of view. But here in Alberta, we have removed from our law the uh, longstanding uh, power to impose mandatory inoculation because I really think that is uh, clearly a step too far. I think it was clearly be unconstitutional. It is a direct violation of bodily autonomy. Now, having said that, Alberta, like other provinces, has a, a proof of vaccination program. And so in venues, activities, that, uh, of discretionary activities that could be a higher risk for viral transmission, um, we require people to provide a proof of vaccination or a recent negative test. And so I think that is the the uh, framework uh, for people, and, and it has encouraged a higher level of vaccination. You know, one of the reasons we got hit bad in the Delta wave is we were then under-vaccinated, but we've now caught up to the national average. 90% of Alberta adults have received a first dose, 87% a second dose. So I think we're in a much stronger position now. When it comes to truck drivers, you had some pretty strong comments late last week saying that the Canadian government uh, should not be imposing mandatory vaccination on truck drivers. You're concerned about the supply chain. You're concerned about those truck drivers. But the Americans are bringing in the exact same rules. In fact, beyond truck drivers, it'll apply to any foreign citizen entering the United States through a land border that you have to be vaccinated from January 22nd on. So why do you think the Canadian government should take a, a different position than the American government on this? Well, it, look, uh, we, we can't control American policy, but I would say, first of all, we should be vigorously lobbying the U.S. administration to apply a common sense approach. Secondly, we shouldn't uh, do, shoot ourselves in the foot just because the Americans are doing that. Let's be uh, frank, Mercedes, while exporting Canadian products to the U.S. is hugely important, the, the, many of the groceries, especially fresh produce uh, on our uh, shelves across the country, uh, come from the U.S. And so if we further impair uh, imports from the U.S., it's going to drive up inflation, which in food is already sky high. It, it will make it more expensive for Canadians to buy basic groceries at, at the worst possible time. And here's my, my point. Look, I understand that there are some contexts where a vaccine mandate may make sense. Hospital workers would be an obvious case. But um, and I think truckers should be encouraged to get vaccinated. But we've had an exception to this rule now for several months. Why would we now apply this quarantine rule just when we are really reaching the peak of this problem of supply chain 
and and inflation. It doesn't make sense. I'm just asking the feds to take a step back, apply some common sense here, and extend uh, the current exemption, uh, not requiring that quarantine, which could really, um, really clobber uh, the, uh, us in terms of cost of living and access to, to groceries, et cetera. What's your relationship like right now with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau? How would you describe it? Well, uh, I would say it's professional. Uh, we have some a bunch of issues where we are strongly uh, at odds, and there's no uh, everybody knows that. And there are some issues where we've been able to work together. And I said to him the day after I was elected that I was committed to finding common ground where we could uh, move forward in the to the in, in the interests of Albertans, particularly our economy. Unfortunately, his government has continued with policies like uh, the No More Pipelines law, the tanker ban, um, continued uh, to ignore Alberta democracy on our Senate elections, um, and continues to announce more and more policies that hammer Canada's largest industry, which is Alberta's oil and gas industry. So we'll continue to do everything we can to fight for our vital economic interests while finding places where we can cooperate, as we often have uh, through, uh, through various aspects of COVID, for example. Uh, the federal government has said that they're going to start ending the subsidies to oil and gas, um, fossil fuels within two years. Obviously that has an impact on Alberta. What do you see the future of your province's energy being? Because it seems pretty clear that the federal government is committed to transitioning away from the oil sands pretty quickly. Well, if that is in fact the case, they haven't said that to us bluntly, but there's certainly a lot of suggestions that they, I mean, the, the appointment of Stephen Gibo, a, a former uh, environmental extremist uh, to the environment ministry is very concerning to us. Uh, and it's just the accumulation of policies uh, that have been uh, pinning down our uh, energy industry. You know, Mercedes, uh, half a million Canadian jobs are tied directly or indirectly uh, to oil and gas, mainly out of Alberta. It's our large, the country's largest export industry, the largest subsector of our economy. We sell $100 billion of this energy to the Americans alone every year. And here's the point. You could, if we turned off uh, Alberta and Canadian energy, oil and gas production tomorrow, that would not change one single thing in terms of emissions or global demand and consumption. It would just hand a, uh, a monopoly to the world's worst regimes, to OPEC dictatorships and Putin's Russia. Uh, so we think the world needs more Canadian uh, responsibly produced energy uh, to compete with uh, those regimes that are spreading uh, instability and often conflict around the world. And Canada is a country with the, amongst the highest environmental standards, full transparency, publicly traded and accountable companies that are committed to achieving net zero um, emissions in their energy production by 2050. We are partners with them in that. Uh, and we hope the federal government, instead of just uh, hammering the biggest job creating industry in the country, works with us to uh, develop, adopt technologies like expanding carbon capture, utilization and storage that can help those energy companies achieve their net zero goals. We've seen uh, in the UK the decision to get rid of uh, basically all of the COVID restrictions. Uh, there's discussions in Ontario about slowly moving into reopening. Obviously, we are under much more severe restrictions right now in Ontario than you are in Alberta, I believe. Um, you had an experience with this over the summer where you opened up very quickly and then you had some regrets about that. What lessons have you learned from that and how will you apply that as you prepare to open back up? And I guess, are you looking at getting rid of the restrictions that are in place permanently, what point does that happen at for you? 
Sure, great question. So uh, we're following very closely what's happening in Britain and elsewhere. Uh, the, the problem for us in the summer with the Delta wave in the, in the fall was that we had not yet reached uh, high enough levels of vaccination. We, we thought we were there, uh, but since then we've gone from 75% to 90% adult coverage and a whole lot more people who have added uh, immunity through prior infection. Uh, so-called natural immunity. Uh, obviously, that we're adding to that right now with with the much less severe Omicron variant, um, and that makes me hopeful. I quoted uh, yesterday from an editorial in the British medical journal, The Lancet, saying that after Omicron, uh, that COVID will come back, but the pandemic won't. Now we don't know that for sure, so we will proceed uh, cautiously and prudently. But I think we will be in a position to substantially uh, re re release uh, public health measures that we have in, the, in this province, which are far less stringent than, for example, in, in central Canada. And, um, and to move, because we have to just l learn to live with this. You know, right now we have not quite reached, we, I think we're coming down the COVID um, uh, transmission peak, but we've not yet reached the COVID the Omicron hospitalization peak that will probably be late January, early February. Once we start to see sustainable reduction in our hospitalizations from Omicron, then I think we can move to begin significantly relaxing public health measures. And, and, and if Omicron acts like, for example, the Spanish flu or any other uh, similar uh, contagious viral, uh, sorry, respiratory virus, I think we can expect to see increasing, uh, uh, decreasing severity in future variants, which should bode well for the future. Premier, um, obviously, you are a fiscal conservative. Uh, that's very clear. It's clear during your time when you were here in Ottawa, and I used to interview you then, and, and it's the case as well while you're in Alberta. The reality of the pandemic, though, has forced a lot of government spending. You do have a budget coming up in just a few weeks. In that budget, are you looking at the possibility of raising taxes or cutting programs to try to balance it because money has to come from somewhere or you'll remain in the same level of uh, debt and deficit that you're in right now? Well, the answer is no and no. You're right, Alberta continues to have a structural deficit. We inherited the largest deficit in our history from the uh, NDP government. Uh, we have a restrained spending in a very careful way, a challenging, a very challenging to do that during the pandemic. But we have seen a reduction of real per capita program spending of about 15%. Um, and we, we, so we are operating much more efficiently. Alberta used to have by far the most inefficient government in Canada. Our first job was to get that under control. We largely have. There will be some continued work to do on fiscal restraint without any deep, deep cuts. And there's absolutely no way we're looking at tax increases. Our focus is on uh, economic growth and job creation. We're leading the country last year, projected to do so in 2022 in economic growth. And uh, part of that is the Alberta advantage of having lower taxes. We've reduced taxes on job creators and uh, our message to the rest of the country, investors, workers, if you want to live in and benefit from a low cost of living, low tax environment with an incredible standard of living, please come to Alberta. Uh, we are open for business. You've had a rough go of it with your own caucus and some of your supporters. You have a leadership review coming up. You have to get 50%. But what's your number that you want to see in that leadership review to feel confident about staying on as leader of the UCP in Alberta? Well, I don't have a, a number in particular. We just had a party convention in November uh, attended by 1,600 delegates, and I felt enormous support there. I think some friends and people in the media were disappointed uh, to see that, perhaps, but it, I, was, I felt incredibly encouraged. It's been tough. Uh, for our government, our province, and, and the party I lead. Um, but particularly, you know, Mercedes and Alberta, we got a lot of freedom-loving people. I think that's one of our 
uh, great strengths who are skeptical, people who are skeptical about government power generally and government overreach in COVID. And yet at times we have had to bring in difficult measures to preserve or protect our healthcare system from a disaster. So that has caused some frustration amongst Alberta Conservatives that's been expressed in, uh, in my caucus and, and, and party. I think that, that uh, the bottom line though is we're gonna get past all of that. Uh, we've, been, we've been able to have a, a lower COVID fatality rate um, with much less stringent restrictions in the rest of Canada. And um, let us hope that Omicron is the beginning of the end of this. Alberta's economy is taking off. Our primary commitment to Albertans in the last election was jobs, the economy, and pipelines. And we are winning on all of those things. We've implemented over 85% of our platform commitments. So I'm confident that our party wants us to, to move forward uh, on that basis. One last question for you, Premier. What has this been like for you? Uh, you faced a, a lot of controversies. You've been beat up by your own caucus. W what has this experience felt like for you being at the leadership helm? It seems like maybe it's been a little bit lonely. <laughs> you know, it, it's, I think, been difficult for everybody during leadership in COVID. You've had to, we've all had to make impossibly difficult decisions with, with only very bad options. And, you know, very typically during some of these uh, virulent waves, the choice between do you risk blowing out the hospitals and having to cut life support for people? Or do you bring in uh, painful restrictions that can have all kinds of negative effects on people's lives, their livelihoods, their mental health, et cetera? These have been impossibly difficult decisions and probably a little more difficult in Alberta politically than, than elsewhere in Canada because uh, this is more of a freedom-loving province, more skeptical about government restrictions. So I won't pretend it's been easy, but you know something? We've con we've uh, continued to keep our eye on the ball doing managing COVID while also delivering on a very ambitious reform agenda focused on economic growth and recovery. And on that, we are winning. We're, we're uh, knocking the lights out in terms of diversification, economic job growth, attracting investment. And I'm really excited about what the future holds. Premier Kenny, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks, Mercedes. That's our show for today. You can watch our extended interview with Jason Kenney on our website, globalnews.ca. We'll see you back here next Sunday for the West Block. I'm Mercedes Stevenson.